Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 82nd episode of our podcast, I interviewed Elizabeth Galbit, co-founder and managing partner at SoGal Ventures. Elizabeth has founded two venture capital firms. While attending business school, she founded A-Level Capital, the first student-led VC firm powered by John Hopkins students. Her current firm, SoGal Ventures, is the first female-led millennial VC firm. They focus on investing in diverse founding teams that are trying to solve major problems in the consumer or healthcare industry. Elizabeth and her co-founder and partner, Pocket Sun, have invested in over 50 companies, including Everywell, Function of Beauty, Little Spoon, and many more. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice for founders on getting media attention, Elizabeth's early professional background, and the story of how A-Level Capital came to be, what led her down the path of starting SoGal Ventures, as well as the details behind the firm and what they are targeting for investments, the importance of diversity and entrepreneurship, how Elizabeth manages her time, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that we have a weekly digest email that has all the must-know information about the New York tech scene? It is a one email a week that will keep you plugged in, and it comes out every single Monday morning. Go to venturefizz.com backslash email to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Pete. So Elizabeth, I was excited to talk to you because we have so much to talk about, all the great things that uh, you've accomplished throughout your career and obviously the important work you're doing as a venture capitalist. But uh, to kick things off, like you and your partner have been featured um, quite a bit in the media. So I always find it interesting for uh, you know, founders, you know, like what advice would you give to folks that are trying to get attention uh, in the media? Like you've been featured in Forbes, Fortune, and several other major outlets. So what advice would you give back to founders on accomplishing that you know, media attention goal? Yes, Keith. So in the past two and a half years, we've been featured in over 150 media outlets, which wow. has been absolutely <laughs> That's fantastic. <amazing. laughs> um, and it really was never sort of an intention or goal of ours. I think, you know, media and the press, it does a fantastic job at amplifying the good work that a company is already doing. I always tell my entrepreneurs, like, the goal shouldn't be to get press or media. The goal should be to be such a great company that press and media want to cover you and they right. want to do exclusive view you and they're almost chasing you rather than the other way around based on the amazing business you've built. It's really an amplifier. It's not necessarily right the end goal. And so I think, you know, we never have hired an outside PR firm officially. I'm really lucky. My mother-in-law does do PR, so she definitely has helped us along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of it has actually all been inbound. And I think that's attributable to a few things. I think so to sort of take it all back, SoGal Ventures is one of the first millennial venture capital firms, and we invest globally, which is really different um, than a lot of the next generation and female-led funds. Um, so I think, right, it's be different um, and also be authentic on what you're building and have a really authentic and genuine story, really the why of what of what's driving you to do what you do. And then, of course, again, just like execute, execute, execute on making your business great. And once you have that really good sort of growth trajectory and narrative, that's going to kind of be this, you know, great round wheel of press where one story leads to another story that leads to another story. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I think always be telling, right, like your narrative in a way that is authentic to you. A lot of times I see startups um, where they hire a PR firm, they're spending a lot of money on this PR firm and they're having their PR representative sort of write a lot of the content that then is going to the media Mm -hmm. um, and they're not necessarily being very hands-on and editing it. And a lot of the times that can really fall flat because as an entrepreneur, sort of your narrative of what got you to where you are and why you're building this interesting company is something that typically is very personal. Um, and you're going to know more about your company, right, than anyone else. Right. Um, so I think you do have to be pretty hands-on in crafting that narrative and sometimes also getting an outside perspective on like, does this make sense? Does this sound good? Because also sometimes as an entrepreneur, you can get so much down into the weeds that you want to say every little, you know, gritty detail about what's going on, but you sort of are missing the big picture, which is why you started your company in the first place. Um, so I think it's always important to kind of crowdsource a little bit too, to make sure you're telling this very authentic and compelling message. And then you'll really get the media attention your company deserves. That's great feedback. Uh, you know, so I don't consider VentureFizz as a traditional media outlet, yet we do get a large amount of inbound uh, PR firms uh, soliciting uh, different types of stories. And it just is, uh, you know, you see the good from the bad. So if you, you know, if you are engaging with a PR firm, which fortunately you haven't had to do, you know, officially, but there's so many that uh, are just trying to boil the ocean and don't know our voice. And, you know, you, you can see the ones that totally understand our angle. And those are the ones that, you know, I respond to and it's like, yeah, let's set up, you know, a conversation. So, uh, yeah, totally exactly. Agree. And just like as a startup who's pitching a VC, like these pitches to media should always be, you know, different and mm -hmm. focused on the person you're pitching to. Because at the end of the day, a journalist is a person just like you, and they want to build a relationship that's based person to person, not just based on some copy and paste text that you're sending their way. Exactly. And the copy and paste ones are always the best. <laughs> so, well, let's take a step back. Let's, uh, you know, as far as your background, Elizabeth, where'd you grow up? What'd your parents do for work? Yeah. So I grew up in Naples, Florida, which back at the time was a pretty small town lots of retired individuals. Um, and my dad is an internal medicine doctor who takes care of a lot of those retired individuals who moved down to Florida. And my mom was also a doctor and a surgeon, but actually when I was three, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis mm. and had to quit being a doctor, which she had dreamed for of all of her life. Um, and I was really lucky. My mom's one of those people that makes, you know, lemonade out of lemons. Mm -hmm. And although she lost her lifetime career goal of being a physician, she started a nonprofit to help um, disabled individuals and their families all over Florida and has helped probably at the time thousands of individuals, including those who have multiple sclerosis. And so I just got to grow up seeing, you know, how somebody makes, you know, iterations and shifts based on you know whatever situation is thrown your way and that persistence and resilience um and that you know even if something isn't what you thought it was going to be there's still something great that you can make of it that's an amazing story now as far as like as a, as a child what, like what were you like as a as, as a child like what were your interests or like like how did you 
you know, kind of interact day to day? Like, were you always curious or? Yeah, so I was an only child and I think given my mom's illness, um, I really had to grow up pretty quick. Um, and also just being an only child, I always ended up around all my parents' friends were doctors. So it would you know, be like eight doctors around the dinner table and me. Um, so I learned how to have adult conversation and talk about healthcare and medicine really early on. Um, and I ended up in middle and high school being really lucky to have a great group of friends, many of whom I'm still really good friends with today. But I'd say I was pretty like nerdy, but I was also pretty competitive, hardworking. Um, so I was like a mathlete. So a lot of weekends I'd go and travel to different places in the state from the office and like take math tests for trophies. Mm, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and I was one of the only girls that did that. So that was always fun. Um, I was on the mock trial team. I did a lot of volunteering. I played five varsity sports and cheerleading was something that I continued with in college. Um, but I also was always working. Um, so I always loved having the ability to like make my own money and have independence. Mm -hmm. um, so starting at the age of 15, I actually got my first job at a bead shop where they made custom jewelry. Mm. Um, and the owner really liked me because I was able to quickly do all the math because you would charge for each of these different beads. And sometimes, you know, there was 50 opal beads this way, 20 jade beads, and you'd have to do all the math to get the price of the necklace or other piece of jewelry mm -hmm. they were building. Um, and I think that was really my first time sort of blending business with the creative side. And that's really continued throughout my life and career. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And then, you know, I went being a waitress where you learn all things like customer service. Mm -hmm. I had a little tutoring empire. Um, the one thing I was never good at was babysitting. I tried that once and they, I fell asleep and they just <laughs> saved themselves. Um, so I think definitely you got to focus on your strengths. That's great feedback. And actually great feedback for my 15 year old daughter who, uh, you know, she's, she's interested in making her own money and she's trying to find, you know, the, the other ways of doing it outside of babysitting. So she's uh, potentially going to be taking care of uh, dogs at a, you know, an SPCA type of uh, place. So we'll see. Yeah, that's awesome. And I always say like, typically if, you know, somebody's entrepreneurial, you have all these like micro businesses and training growing mm -hmm. up and, you know, even, as you get older through your 20s, 30s, perhaps some of them end up just being, you know, hobbies rather than actual businesses, but they all teach you these amazing skills to when you actually find the business that's going to kind of be, you know, your life's work or a big part of your life work that you're ready for it. Now you went on to uh, uh, attend Georgetown University for your undergraduate and you studied economics and government. So. You know, what were, what were you thinking there as far as um, you know, entering school and, and studying those topics? Yeah, so I really thought I was going to go to school and become a lawyer like so many other, you know, young Jewish children. Um, <laughs> because I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't really like bodily fluids. So those were kind of the two options, lawyer or doctor. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, when I got to Georgetown, I realized, although I liked sort of government and politics, it wasn't really for me. And I was really lucky that I kind of accidentally took an econ class my freshman year. And I just realized like, wow, I'm really good at this. This is really interesting. It's how you mix business policy, creating good impact and you know outcomes for society or a nation. 
And that really just stuck with me. And I was lucky enough to study for a year abroad at London School of Economics. Um, and that was a fantastic experience. Um, and I think being in DC and in the city and being able to try out different things while I was at Georgetown was just so instrumental in getting me to where I am today. Such an amazing campus too. I love Georgetown. Yeah. <laughs> then after undergrad, so you went on to uh, consulting. So Deloitte Consulting, what type of work were you doing there? Yeah, so this is right at the time when the federal government was saying that, you know, healthcare needs to embrace technology and actually was mandating a lot of these hospital systems to do so. And it was really an interesting time because a lot of the technology wasn't sort of fully built out in what I would call a user experience friendly way to make processes more efficient. But the government was sort of forcing that, you know, everyone adopt these technologies, um, even though they were probably too early. So I spent about three years advising large hospital systems, healthcare companies, payers, providers um, on what sort of their technology strategies would be. And for some of them, that was to, you know, buy software that already existed. For some of them, it was to buy, you know, sometimes dozens of different types of software that then they had to integrate. Sometimes it was, you know, a buy plus, you know, build your own software complementary and integrate it. And sometimes it was actually setting up their own venture M&A activities um, to buy some of this private proprietary software that was being built at the time. So that was really my first exposure to like startups per se. At the time, I just saw them as kind of these small tech companies that, you know, had two to 10 employees that were building kind of these interesting modules for different parts of healthcare. Um, but I was pretty like jaded by the experience because I saw our clients spending, you know, tens of billions of dollars um, to really implement these technologies and completely overhauling their workflow. And, um, but at the time, all the software really wasn't user-friendly. And I really kind of saw this path forward where there was going to be lots of issues with it. And I felt kind of like dirty to have to be part of this, of, you know, healthcare system wasting billions of dollars to make itself more inefficient. Um, so I actually then chose to go and get an MBA and an MA in design at this brand new program that was offered by Johns Hopkins and Maryland Institute College of Art, where it's actually combining a full-time design degree with a full-time MBA. And my goal, at least when I started there, was to really learn how do you design better products and services in the healthcare space, especially software technologies that will actually, you know, make the lives of doctors, nurses, and all other sort of healthcare clinicians easier, also make it more effective with better patient outcomes, um, and it be in a way that, you know, just like an iPhone has, you know, great user experience um, that makes everyone in the ecosystem, you know, happy and more productive, because the reality is, is in the U.S., healthcare is almost a quarter of our national sort of GDP spend, and that's really unsustainable, especially because the healthcare system as it is, isn't even one of the top in the world. Um, so I was always very interested in like, how do you create more cost effective healthcare that also leads to better outcomes and utilize technology to do so. And it seems though, is it this program that you also kind of found your way into a, a deeper level of entrepreneurship, right? 
Yeah, because even though I had like these little businesses growing up, I really didn't know what a true startup even was at that time. And I was, you know, it was a pretty lucky moment. Um, there was some graduating students from Hopkins Business School that had started a club called Innovation Factory. And they were hosting this big conference um, right at the beginning of school, but they had already graduated. So they were basically like, hey, you look nice. Please take this over. <laughs> Um, you know, we're expecting like 300 or 400 people and some speakers, like you've got a couple months to figure it out. Um, and I wasn't even really intending at the time to focus on entrepreneurship. I really thought, you know, I'd go back to either a consulting and innovation firm or a product design firm, like, you know, IDEO or something and really help design, um, these types of new technologies. Um, but once I sort of dipped my foot in the real startup world, um, I definitely couldn't go back. Do you think the, the design background, like, cause that's a very interesting program. I don't think I've ever seen that, like the MBA combined with the design. Do you think that has, you know, helped you in terms of what you do today? 100%. I think design is so crucial to building good technologies. Um, yeah. It helps make sure that you're actually solving the right problem. So it really starts with design research. There's many different forms such as ethnographic research. But first as a startup or entrepreneur, you just have to make sure like, am I actually solving the right problem? Hmm. Because a lot of the times we think that we know what the problem is, but you may not actually be pinpointing the true problem and things like marketing surveys, in traditional marketing research um, really don't do much to help you get to the root um, cause and the root of the problem you're trying to solve. Um, so actually I'm a part-time professor at the School of Visual Arts now here in New York at the Graduate Program for Products of Design. Um, and actually part of our thesis at SoGal Ventures is to invest in what we call design-centric businesses because we think that gives them such a competitive advantage to win. Makes sense. Now, after graduating from B-School, what did you do after that? Yeah, so I was running the student club innovation factory. We ended up with over 50 student leaders. We had been working with hundreds of startups founded by Hopkins students and alumni. Um, but the issue was, was there was no real early stage risk, risky capital in Baltimore. I would bring in angel investors and VCs. And nobody really wanted to invest in, you know, Baltimore um, as a geographic area. And I'm sure founders and other, you know, underrepresented geographic areas feel the same way. We've definitely heard that through our SoGal communities. Um, but I was just blown away. There was so much good technology coming out of Johns Hopkins. I kind of call it um, Stanford Talent Baltimore Prices. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and I saw this opportunity and couldn't figure out how to make people want to invest in that. Um, and there was actually something very personal that happened. I was helping this company called Prosha, um, which is a digital pathology company that uses computer vision, AI, um, to bring pathology into the cloud and also make it more effective, which is, you know, reading cancer biopsies and giving the correct diagnosis. And at the time, um, my father had actually been diagnosed with cancer and he had been misdiagnosed for three years um, because the pathologist hadn't read his, you know, biopsies correctly over those three years. Um, wow. 
And this startup was solving that problem. And it was a bunch of undergrads, but like nobody wanted to invest in this company. And I was seeing them, they were about to graduate from undergrad. And I said, you know, like I have to figure out how to, you know, make sure you guys build this company instead of going on and doing something else like working at a traditional biomedical engineering firm or a company like Stryker or something. Um, so I actually then co-founded um, with a couple under other individuals a student-led fund called A-Level Capital. Um, and for example, in that company, we were the first $10,000 check um, and they ended up going on. We helped them raise their seed round of a couple million dollars and you know, about a half a year ago, they just announced their $10.5 million Series A round, um, and they're already using their software in top healthcare institutions like Johns Hopkins, Mayo Clinic, Samsung Cancer Institute in Korea. Um, and that was really my first experience of seeing how even a very little bit of money, right, $10,000, yeah. can be the difference of whether a company feels like they should keep going or not, and if the founders feel confident that sh they should keep going. And that can be the difference of one of these companies existing in the world and creating that change that, at least at SoGal, we say we wish to see in the world, um, or not. And so with that, I was really kind of hooked on, you know, I need to invest in these arbitrage opportunities where I see value, but others may not, um, so that these types of entrepreneurs have a chance. Like, like you, you talk about, um, you know, different areas, maybe not having the same access to capital. So, so, uh, like, you know, John Hopkins, like what's the entrepreneurial vibe that you witnessed while you were, you know, running this student led fund? Yeah. So they were really hungry, but there hadn't been tons of activity. Yeah. So John Hopkins in particular is made up of nine separate schools and they're all a little bit geographically dispersed between Baltimore outside of, Baltimore and then in DC. And so actually over five of these schools are actually in the top five for what they do in the country. Right. So it's amazing levels of talent, but often the students of each individual school don't connect based on that sort of geographic distance between them all. And so a lot of what we were doing with that student club innovation factory was bringing everyone together mm -hmm. so that, you know, the person who's at the top education school in the country could meet with the person who's at the top international studies school in the country and could meet with a business student as well as somebody who's in the top data science program in the country and build something. And we actually saw that work. And then we saw these companies starting to be formed and built. And then it was really, how do we make sure there's capital there to do that? It is interesting because uh, areas like Baltimore, D.C., and like Philadelphia, I see it too, where you have so many great academic institutions that are creating things that probably are things that could get funded but never get off the ground because, you know, the amount of investment capital is uh, significantly uh, less than, you know, New York, Boston, Valley, which is uh, ends up being unfortunate. Yeah, yeah and at SoGal Ventures, we believe great companies can be founded anywhere. Some of the best companies in our portfolio are in these underrepresented markets, including Austin, Boise, Idaho, um, Philadelphia, all over the place. We actually in SoGal Ventures right now in our current fund out of 19 companies, we don't have a single company in the Bay Area. Wow. And that wasn't because we don't want a company in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. It's just 
in the thousands of deals we see a year, a Bay Area company has not risen to the top to be one of our 10 to 15 investments a year. Well, that is a perfect segue. So let's, let's talk about what led you to start SoGal Ventures. Yeah, so I actually met my co-founder, Pocket, um, while I was sort of, you know, getting this student fund off the ground. And she had been doing something similar, but a little bit different while she was in grad school at USC. Um, when she was in grad school um, studying entrepreneurship and innovation, her professors didn't bring in any women or minority entrepreneurs or investors into the class as speakers. It was mostly just white men. And she asked her professors to kind of, you know, please, can you bring in somebody that looks like me? Um, she's Asian. She's not from America. Um, she's a woman. She's part of the LGBTQ community. Um, and she really just wanted role models, you know, that looked like her and, you know, were different than the white males that all of her professors brought in. So she started a student group um, called SoGal. Um, that was really on the mission to redefine the next generation of founders and funders. And it started with, you know, a small event. They didn't even have any funding. So, you know, 40 people in a room and she had invited a cupcake and tea entrepreneurs and she told them you had to bring cupcakes and tea. Um, so they had some food there. Um, and very quickly in a matter of months, she was hosting, you know, a conference with 500 people, 60 speakers. Um, full day event um, with all these women and minority speakers and attendees. And so the talent was always there in LA, but you know, her professors just hadn't found it at the time. And she had really realized in that, that again, you can do as many of these educational and community building initiatives as you want, but the money isn't there for these founders. Mm -hmm. And you know, women get less than 3% of venture capital every year. That's pathetic, right? Minorities, even less so. Right. Um, and for there to be this really systematic change, the money has to happen. And similar to how I was looking at Baltimore geographically as this investment arbitrage opportunity, we realized really quickly that women minorities and other underrepresented founders are really the biggest investment arbitrage opportunity of this decade. And we wanted to focus on that and really putting money towards these founders was what we saw as the most impactful thing we could do. So what, what is the, uh, so you went on the, you know, raise a, a fund, like what's the, the size of your fund and what stage of investing do you typically target? Yeah, so our funds targets $15 million. We typically focus on pre-seed and seed companies, sometimes small series A. And we invest in how the next generations live, work, and stay healthy. So that breaks down to consumer tech, enterprise software, and health tech, um, often, or I guess always, focused on millennials and Generation Z as sort of the core demographic that these technologies are benefiting um, in their life cycle. So, so far in this fund, we have 19 portfolio companies, um, Pocket and myself, between my student fund and some angel investing we did as we got to know each other, have almost 60 companies we've invested in in the past three years. Um, so we've been really busy, um, but <laughs> totally. it's been really exciting sort of seeing all these great companies 
um, get off the ground. And our current portfolio, um, we really believe in what we call broad-based diverse founding teams. So that's everything from gender, sexual orientation, um, backgrounds, or are you American, an immigrant from somewhere else? What's your professional educational background, race, age, all these things that make people different, unique, and unique. We want teams that, you know, together are very diverse. Um, so in our current portfolio, all of our founding teams have at least one woman. Many of them have minorities. We have founders that identify as part of the LGBTQ community. We have many founders that are not Americans or are first generation American immigrants. Um, and not just the individual founder themselves, right? Because an individual isn't diverse themselves. They're just an individual. But the teams that they make up are incredibly diverse. And that's what research shows creates higher return on investment, higher employee morale, lower turnover rate, higher profitability. Um, and so we really believe that by doing this and taking this ground up approach rather than a top down approach, that hopefully the companies we're investing in will be some, become some of the tech behemoths of tomorrow. And instead of, you know, Google or Facebook needing to spend millions of dollars on diversity efforts, which I think is totally needed and necessary, that actually our portfolio will, you know, employ thousands of people that, you know, from day one, these companies had diverse teams and really believed in a culture of inclusivity. So inclusion, right, is really the end goal where everyone has equal opportunity and the ability to thrive, whether they're starting a company leading a company or working at one of these companies. Now, in the relatively short time that you've you know, been running the fund, obviously you've been very active making investments and have already seen you know, success. But are, are there a couple of company examples that you can share just to you know, give our audience you know, some companies that you've invested in that are already starting to see some aggressive traction? Yeah, so I can name a few. We have one called Everlywell, which is at-home lab testing. So they test over 30 different things, anything from STD testing, fertility testing. They were the first at-home fertility test, um, thyroid hormones, other hormones, um, vitamin D and vitamin levels, um, to even more common things like A1, C1 for your sugar glucose levels or, you know, heart health cholesterol tests. And they make it really easy, affordable, and convenient. Um, I'm sure I've had this experience, and I'm sure many other people who are listening to this show have, where you go to a doctor, you take off work, you're already stressed out because, you know, you're sitting in a waiting room for an extra hour that you didn't plan. They say you need some labs. They're not really clear where you need to go to get them. You really don't have time to take another day off work, so either you don't go get the labs you need or you get the labs you need and you're like, how much is this going to cost? Nobody can tell you. Um, and you get this bill at the end of the day, right? That, you know, can be thousands of dollars and you're just like flabbergasted. Like what just happened? I was just trying to, you know, test my hormones to make sure I'm okay. Right. Um, so Everlywell eliminates all of that. It has clear, transparent pricing and it's incredibly affordable. You can use HSA, FSA, um, some insurance companies are even starting to use it um, for their care networks. You can find it at CVS, among other retailers. And it's just fantastic because it gives you affordable and convenient access to care. 
specifically millennials. Um, the majority of the time when a millennial gets a doctor's order to take a test, they actually won't ever take it for some of the reasons that I mentioned previously. And that actually makes preventative healthcare impossible. Um, and so if we wanna have a healthcare system that's focused on preventative healthcare, it's really important that people are taking the lab tests and have the data that they need. And something else that's really interesting is this company is built in Austin. So, you know, a non what's called a top tech city, right? Um, and they're doing absolutely fantastic. They have over 60 employees now, um, tens of millions of dollars of revenue in only two years, extremely fast growing. Um, but something that's really personal to my heart and that I think is really important is study after study shows that doctors do not take women and minorities seriously when they go to the doctor and you know exhibit symptoms compared to when a white male goes to a doctor oh, so yeah. oftentimes women and minorities will not get the tests that they need to see what's going on with them and this is wow. incredibly frustrating and of course so just really bad for your health um so everly well actually enables anyone right to say like mm -hmm. hey i've been feeling really fatigued i have these symptoms there's kind of a quiz you can go through that helps direct you to what tests may be the right test um, for what you're currently going through and you can you know do the full thyroid panel and see if something is going on and then mm -hmm. take those results to your doctor and say hey I know you didn't want to test me for this because you don't think anything's wrong with me and you think I just need to you know have less stress and eat better but actually right. my thyroid um, you know, <laughs> levels are really out of whack can you help me with this and you or find a different doctor. <laughs> yeah, or find a different doctor. And then they also have virtual consults with a third-party doctor network. So it makes it really easy, really accessible um, to actually get the care you need. Um, so that's, that's one an amazing, awesome amazing company, company in our portfolio. And I yeah. see they were just they were just recognized by Fast Company as one of the most innovative companies of 2019, which uh, makes a lot of sense why they would be. Yeah, exactly. And I'm all for more affordable healthcare for all that's transparent and accessible and really fits everyone's individual needs. So I absolutely love what they're building. So another example was the first investment in our current fund is called Function of Beauty. It's custom shampoo and conditioner. Um, I actually call it an advanced manufacturing company. Um, they have hundreds of thousands of square feet of advanced manufacturing and the ability to basically produce one-off custom products. Um, there's actually billions of combinations of ingredients that they can put into their one-off custom products right now. And they can produce them at mass manufacturing cost. Um, so right now that's for shampoo and conditioner and they've built a fantastic business around that. Um, but it really can be with anything. And what's also really interesting is the founding team has, you know, very in-depth experience, including PhDs and things like sustainable manufacturing. So the entire manufacturing system is very waste-free. Um, it's a very kind of end-to-end -end loop system, which is great for the environment and all the stakeholders involved. And also is using ingredients that, you know, are good for you, aren't going to kill our environment. Um, aren't going to kill you, um, which a lot of other sort of consumer products, at least from the big companies, are not these days. And this is a great example of 
what happens when you have a very diverse founding team and how because of their unique backgrounds, they were able to be so successful. Um, so the founding team includes um, an immigrant male CEO who he has a PhD in MIT in sustainable manufacturing. It includes a veteran um, officer from the Navy who his background is from MIT as well as in supply chain. And he's from this really tiny town in Pennsylvania that is known for a lot of you know, hands-on manufacturing called Catawissa, Pennsylvania. And they have multiple manufacturing facilities now there where you know, everyone that he grew up with is now working for Function of Beauty in Catawissa. And then another immigrant who was doing a lot of the formulation, she's a scientist, um, was doing a lot of the formulations for Whole Foods and their natural beauty products. And when the three of them came together, right, based on all of their different backgrounds and expertises, it really made something special. And although people can try and copy, you know, what they're doing and the concept of what they've built, because of just the unique, right, being from this small town that has, you know, the manufacturing capability, um, the CEO had a company previously that was a hair care company where he had created a collective um, in Morocco for women to be paid fairly for argan oil. So, you know, really understanding the supply chain and all the inputs you need for it. Having somebody who's, she's a scientist and understands how to do natural formulation. They're like the dream team and that's why they've been so successful. And there are some competitors that have popped up and really tried to copy what they're doing. But I'm pretty certain that those competitors aren't going to be successful because they don't have diverse founding teams with diverse backgrounds that bring these unique strengths and skill sets to the table. Now, how are you going about sourcing your deal flow? Uh, well, maybe a better way to ask the question is like, like how, do, how do people get on your radar? Like you have portfolio companies in you know, Austin, Idaho, Philadelphia, New York, uh, Singapore. So how are you going about you know, finding these great companies or how do they get on your radar? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different ways. Um, because SoGal started as a community and actually grew really quickly as a community, we actually have kept that part of what we do, but we spun it out into a 501c3 nonprofit called the SoGal Foundation. So now through the foundation, we host hundreds of events a year in over 40 different cities across the globe, and we're always adding more cities based on interest and you know volunteers who want to be chapter leads in the cities. And we do everything from pitch competitions, working on public speaking, talking about how to get more press, finding co-founders, you know, fundraising. Mental health and wellness is really important to what we do. Physical wellness as well. And so each city hosts on average about 7 to 15 events a year in each of these SoGal chapters. Um, so that's a great way for entrepreneurs to sort of get involved in the SoGal community. And often these chapter leads will kind of bubble up some of these deals to pocket and myself um, as potential investments. So we get a lot of great, you know, deal flow from that and just, you know, being first on somebody's mind as they're starting to even fundraise. Um, 
because really the folks that get the most use of the SoGal community are really at the top of the funnel where they're either still in a tech job and thinking about, you know, building a company, but may need to find co-founders or build their confidence um, that they should, you know, start a company or people who are just starting a company and are looking for all the different things they need in that process. And so the SoGal Foundation community is a great place to start for really early stage entrepreneurs. And then we invest obviously a bit later through SoGal Ventures at like the traditional pre-seed or seed stage round. Um, so that's one way. And then of course there's traditional things like founder referrals, investor referrals. We speak at dozens of conferences and events every quarter. Um, so obviously meeting us in person all around the world um, between Pocket and myself, I think we flew about 400,000 miles um, in the wow. past year. So you can find us in all different cities. Pocket's on our way to Tokyo right now and then San Francisco. So a lot of just, you know, exploring entrepreneurial ecosystems on the ground and meeting people wherever we're going. And then we're really actually open to cold inbound emails, which a lot of firms are not. Mm -hmm. But we think um, for, you know, we're looking for diverse founding teams. Oftentimes, women and other underrepresented founders may not have the same network as some of their white male peers, and we're totally open to a good cold email, and we read all of them. Um, we see, you know, thousands of deals a year, so I'm not great at responding mm -hmm. to all of them, um, but we read each deal that comes in and, take, and we take a look at it. So I encourage you, anyone listening to this can email me your deck or materials, to elizabeth at sogalventures.com and I will see it and read it. Well, since you do read all these, like when you open it, what are you looking for? Like what's the, what should they keep it simple for you to look at? And, you know, hopefully you'll make a decision quickly if you want to actually have a conversation. Yeah. So I think send your deck or materials with it. If I have to like respond and sort of ask you for them, that right, of course, creates more friction in the conversation. And I think a great startup deck is compelling and can stand alone without narration. Um, very quickly when I'm typically looking through a deck, um, I sort of know, do I want to have a first conversation with this entrepreneur or is this really not a fit for our fund? And I think great cold emails are ones, right, that research the person you're sending a cold email to. Like when I started my student fund, I had no idea anyone in venture, let alone how to run a venture fund. Mm -hmm. um, and so I actually started emailing. There's over 250 Hopkins alumni in venture capital um, all over the world. And I started e cold emailing them one by one. And the way that you get responses is being personable, researching the person. You can really Google stock anyone these days mm -hmm. and find anyone's email. Um, and just sort of showing how you can offer value to the person you're reaching out to. And then also just being thoughtful. So, right, just like you do with media pitches, we get lots of copy and paste. Oftentimes, sometimes, you know, they don't even have our firm correct or <laughs> they like start the email with like, sir, or like, hello, uh, mister, um, not wait, addressing us by the correct gender. Um, so those obviously um, are typically not ones that are getting responses um, from us. So I think with everything, authenticity, be genuine, 
Um, and in addition to including, right, your deck or materials, write, you know, three to five bullets with like the most exciting pieces of information about your company, as well as, you know, one or two sentences that really clearly states what your company does. Um, sometimes I'll get cold emails or even introductions from entrepreneurs that's like, here's my deck, thanks. Mm. Um, and that means, right, I have to open the deck before I even know anything about the company. Right. Um, and it's very hard for me to refer back to it later just because we're seeing dozens of deals a day um, among the other things we do. So I think, right, having that one to two sentences that talks about what your company is, a few bullets with like the most exciting things that you have done or is going on with your company to really get me excited about it. And then including your materials is the best way. And I'm totally open to cold email introductions. A lot of other VCs are not, but with me, Elizabeth at SoGalVentures.com. That's great, great feedback. Now, you obviously are you know, running a 100,000 miles an hour in all different directions. So I'm sure um, a typical week is never the same. But like, how do you manage your time? Like, I'd imagine you're doing so many different things, meetings, traveling. So how, how are you able to manage your time? Yeah, I think with anything, especially as a startup founder, you have to prioritize you have to understand like what are the most important things that I have to get done today? What are things that, you know, can wait, be on the back burner? What are the things that I can delegate? Um, every day looks really different for us. It consists of, you know, looking at new pitches, answering emails, working with our current entrepreneurs in a big portfolio. There's always a couple fires that need help being put out or a founder that kind of needs a pseudo therapist here to listen to what's going on, um, interacting with our LPs. We have to fundraise just like a startup has to fundraise. And then we have to keep our investors happy too. And then, you know, our side project of the SoGal Foundation, our nonprofit, working with our team, doing there and what they do. Um, and then traveling, speaking. Um, a lot of the times, right, it's visiting companies in person that we're thinking of investing in or have invested in. Um, but I think really it's just like, figuring out what are your top priorities and knowing that, you know, you're running a marathon, you're not running a sprint. Um, so you really have to understand your energy flows and some days you're not going to be as productive as others. But as long as, you know, you keep putting each foot in front of the other and doing, you know, a little bit each day, you're going to move fast and you're going to move in the right direction, even if there are setbacks along the way. You do quite a bit of traveling. Is there any uh, of your, your favorite um, travel hacks that it's like, oh, this is my lifesaver? Yeah. So I tend to like sleep and kind of recharge a lot on planes. But for some reason, I can never like go to sleep the night before a plane ride. And that actually tends to be some of my most productive work time. So I like work really, really, really hard before the journey and then I actually sleep on the journey and perhaps watch a movie or two and relax so I'm recharged by the time I get to wherever I'm going. Makes sense. That's smart. Well Elizabeth, thank you so much for uh you know sharing your background and kind of your 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 path of how you got to where you are today. Obviously the great advice you shared as far as um you know how to get your attention. And then you know all the great work 
you and your uh, partner or pocket are doing for building this foundation. Like SoGal and so many other firms are taking the step forward for making these investments in so many companies that were underserved. And as a, a father of two teenage girls, it's building such a platform that um, you know, hopefully the, the world will be in much better shape when they uh, enter the workforce. Yeah, we can't wait for one day for your daughter at Just. Um, we even have um, a lot of our LP base is actually under 30 as well. So this is, you know, sort of the first time a lot of these young women are being LPs in a private equity and venture capital fund. Um, so we're just really excited to, you know, help young women and other underrepresented founders and investors sort of dip their foot in and have equal opportunity so that we can have this great inclusive tech ecosystem by the time your daughters are building their company. And I can't wait for that day too. They kind of have no choice, but the entrepreneurship path at some point in their life based on what I do and what I'm drilling into their head. <laughs> so yeah, and, uh, and you're a fantastic role model for them. So keep it up. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.